Now hear God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 30 as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. Because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in Yahweh his God. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, today we come to you and we humble ourselves before your word and we ask you to speak by your Holy Spirit to each of our hearts, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to challenge us and to conform us to the image of your Son. And we know that you will do this because you are so faithful to feed us and to give us what we need. And so, Father, today I pray that you would deliver me from all error, deliver us all from distraction, and cause us to hear your voice speaking to us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, if it ain't one thing, it's another. Have you ever said that? (laughs) You tend to say that. If it's not one thing, it's another. It seems like Bad things tend to happen in batches, that the uh, dishwasher and the refrigerator uh, seem to talk to each other and want to go out at the same time so that you don't just have one thing to repair at any given time, you have two, or the, or the alternator on the car needs to be replaced, or uh, all of a sudden you have a leak in your roof in a part that uh, you, didn't, you didn't know that water was getting into the house. Things tend to stack up, whether they be little house maintenance types of things or bigger things, relationship difficulties, sicknesses. Things tend to come in bunches, in waves. We, we are allowed, we get these pretty good periods of peace But when we start to have trouble, it seems like they stack up. It's one right after another. Like like the beginning of Job. In the first chapters of Job, we hear uh, one report, one bad thing coming to Job. Like waves crashing on the beach. One bad thing right after another. And and, uh, increasing devastation crashing upon him. That's the way it feels sometimes when hard times hit us. And that's definitely what David's life was like from the time he left Saul's court until the time he became king, if it's not one thing, it's another. There's bad things happening. Uh, and his, his, his life is one episode of jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire over and over and over. And it, and it appears for, for any one of us that this, this kind of thing would be pretty, pretty unbearable, pretty tough to make it through. In fact, the last thing we read two weeks ago when we were in 1 Samuel, we read about this incredible, amazing deliverance that God worked out for David. Remember, David has been exiled from the land of Israel. His his conflict with Saul has gotten so great, and Saul has sought his life so many times that David is actually safer living among the Philistines than he is living among God's people. 
And while he's among the Philistines, he becomes this incredible war hero. The Philistines think that he's attacking his own people of Judah. But actually what he's doing is he's running raids throughout the land of Judah, throughout the territory of Judah, but he's actually attacking Amalekites. He's, he's ta attacking Canaanites who shouldn't be there to begin with. And he's taking the plunder, he's taking the spoils of those victories, and he's sharing them with the Philistines. Well, when it comes time for the Philistines to muster their courage and to now uh, launch another attack on Israel, launch another attack on Saul, the king of Philistia think, well, David certainly is going to join us. And of course, the other Philistine princes say, no, he's not joining us. We're not going to go take a an Israelite war hero with us to go attack Israel, that would be disaster. And of course, David is thinking, I don't want to go, but I also don't want to blow my cover. So he's in a tough spot. And that's when they work it out. The king of Philistia sends David home. Well, it's about a three-day journey home to Ziklag, to the city that the king of Philistia gave him. And when they get back home, they find out that the city of Ziklag has been burned and plundered, and there is nobody there. You see, David and his people have just escaped from having to go to war against their own people. They have this brief moment where it appears that everything is working out, everything's going to be okay, and then they get back home, and they're kicked in the gut again. First Chronicles 29, you know that uh, First and Second Chronicles is a retelling of the story of the uh, history of the people, the kingdom of Judah. And so it goes into some detail about David's life and it repeats the story of David. And at the end of David's life, First Chronicles uh, talks about the circumstances that passed over him. That, that's a great description of, of David's life. Just these wave after waves of trials that crash on David from the time he's anointed by Samuel to the time he actually becomes king and beyond, um, we, we read the circumstances that pass over him. I, I, like that, I like that phrase. And this is a sobering picture for God's people. There are times where we think, well, this can't get any worse. And then it, and then it does. And the story here is here to tell us, in fact, it, it can get worse. There are times where we think that, well, that, that's got to be the last straw. And we find out, well, there's another straw behind that one. Whatever that means. This is the last straw. What does that mean anyway? <laughs> that this is the, oh, I guess the straw that broke the camel's back. Is that where that comes from? We think, well, that's it. It's over. And yet, in fact, there's another, there's a last straw after the last straw. There, there's no false advertising in the scriptures about what it means to be a worshiper of the Lord. There, there are no indications anywhere that you are guaranteed perfect children, a perfect job, a perfect marriage, that you'll always be satisfied, that you'll have peace and serenity without any conflict, and that you'll have lots and lots of money, and that you'll never get sick as long as you follow the Lord. That's nowhere on any page of scripture that perfection follows from simple faithfulness. In fact, if somebody tells you that that is the message of the gospel, they are trying to sell you something. They're trying to uh, work out their own peace and serenity and make lots and lots of money off of you, right? I mean, that's, that's not the gospel at all. In fact, this is almost never the case. We are called to live like Jesus. And when we do that, we find ourselves in all kinds of conflict with all manner of deprivation. And David is a witness to this. Even for the guy who's about to become king, nothing goes smoothly. Well, let's follow the story. David and his men are delivered from having to go out to war against Israel. 
And now they come back to Ziklag, the town where they've been living for almost two years. They come back uh, on the third day, and that's significant. The third day means we're going to have a resurrection sequence. Get ready for it. We're going to see life come out of death. But when they get back home, they find out that their worst nightmares have come true. Amalekites have plundered the city. They've invaded it. They've kidnapped everyone, and they've burned the whole thing to the ground. Every time a man leaves on a trip, he thinks, uh, boy, I sure hope nothing goes wrong while I'm away. I I hope nothing happens. I'm not going to be there to fix anything if it breaks. I'm not going to be there to defend them against whatever happens because that's that's my job. But, But sometimes you're called away to do other things and you have to trust that the Lord is going to work things out and protect your Uh, family and your property while you're gone. But while they were gone, the Lord allowed the Amalekites to come in and to attack this unguarded, undefended city. This is what the Amalekites are good at, by the way. That, That name Amalekite ought to ring a bell if you've read the study of the Exodus recently. Uh, The the Amalekites are really good at attacking the defenseless and the weak. It was the Amalekites who attacked Israel after they were delivered from Egypt, after the Lord worked many wonders and the plagues on Egypt. God brought his people out through the Red Sea, and the first thing they meet on the other side of the Red Sea are Amalekites who attack from the rear, who attack the stragglers, who attack the weak and uh, defenseless like, like cowards. So David now has just been delivered from a painfully difficult situation. He's being delivered from Saul as we speak, as, as, as Philistia goes in to, to attack and Saul's going to end up killed. David has gone through this great exodus and while he's been rescued, his, the, the, the women and children under his care have been attacked by Amalekites. What are we being told here? Israel was rescued from Egypt and then and they get attacked by Amalekites. David is delivered and then he gets attacked by these cowardly Amalekites. It may be this lesson that when God works out some wonderfully providential deliverance on our behalf, get ready for Amalekites. Get, get ready for something else. Get ready for the cockroaches and the scavengers to come skittering out of hiding to try to harass and plunder and destroy. And I almost always tell this to people when they commit to a, a new plan, a, a, a new uh, phase of faithfulness for their family or their marriage. I'll say, okay, that's great. I, I really appreciate you making this commitment. I want you to know something though. Something will come out of nowhere to completely destroy your resolve and will we'll completely mess things up. I guarantee it. Just as soon as you say, here's what we're going to do, it's, you're going to be challenged. It's going, something bad is is going gonna, is gonna to happen anytime you get a good start, and you're going to have to overcome that as well, and you're going to have to resist temptation, and you're going to have to be faithful through this difficult spot. Well, this is what happens to David and his men. These sniveling, cowardly Amalekites, they come into a defenseless city. The, the, the raiders didn't have to do a whole lot to overtake Ziklag, and because no one puts up a fight, evidently, they take everyone alive. Living women and children captives are useful. They could be sold to uh, merchants as slaves. Uh, They could be sold as wives. And then these women and children would spend the rest of their lives in bondage or misery. So David and his men don't take this very, very lightly. 
I mean, this is pretty devastating. Try to put yourself in their position. They, they weep, the Bible says, they weep until they have no more power to weep. You, you have, in your life, you have wept until you have dry heaved in weeping, right? You have wept until there's nothing else to pour out of you, until your, your head and your heart are absolutely empty and all you can do is moan. And that is the point these men are in. And we read in verse 5, this might sound redundant, but, but the Bible repeats this. David's two wives were taken. And we already read that the women were taken, but the emphasis here on David's family reminds us, no, I want you to be sure you understand that, that the bride is being attacked by the serpent. See, the serpent from the garden forward, the serpent has his target set on the bride and he attacks her and he attacks her seed but he doesn't want to kill her necessarily. He wants to shame her. He wants to oppress her. He wants to corrupt her children. He wants to steal and corrupt the seed and use the bride to produce more ungodly seed. Remember back in Abraham's day when Abimelech kidnapped Sarah? He doesn't kill Sarah, right? He wants Sarah so that he can raise up more ungodly seed with her. And the very same thing happens to Isaac and Rebekah. The the Philistine captures uh, Rebekah. He doesn't kill her. He wants to raise up his own ungodly children with her. The same thing happens in Egypt. Pharaoh wants to destroy all the Hebrew boys, but he leaves the girls alive and he leaves the women alive because he wants to use them to raise up his own ungodly seed. Don't be naive. The serpent's MO has not changed at all. Since the garden, throughout the entire history of the world, the serpent still wants to attack the bride and he still wants to corrupt the seed. He wants your children because he thinks he can do a better job raising them than you can. In fact, he's pretty sure of that. He's he's certain that he can do a better job raising them than you. And so he, he wants them. He wants them to fit his agenda and his, his course of discipline. And again, Satan, like these Amalekites, he's such a sniveling coward. Satan attacks the weak and he d- attacks the defenseless. He wants to corrupt our children so that he can steal our future. If you corrupt the children, you've lost, you've, you've, you've taken, you've stolen the future. Um, so, What we need is a faithful Adam. We need the man who won't allow the serpent to run rampant in the garden. We need an Adam who will go out and conquer and protect the bride and protect the seed. And we get that in David. The bride must be protected because she's going to give birth to the one who will bring redemption and crush the serpent's head. David doesn't know this yet, but the promised seed is going to come from him. The Lord Jesus is going to come from his family. And so attacking David's bride was Satan's attempt to destroy the seed and prevent the seed from coming. So the fact that David now is going to go after the ones who attack the bride and who corrupt the seed that shows, that proves to us that David is a faithful Adam. David is a faithful Adam who rescues the bride. He's going to be the faithful husband king to Israel who will protect her from the serpent and crush the, the serpent's head. But before they can get started, 
And before they can get after these attackers, David has to deal yet again with internal conflict in his own army. These these last several chapters, we've seen this band of men trying to tempt David into doing something foolish. They've tried to tempt him to stupidity. And you know, these men that he's got around him, they only have one thing in common, really. They all hate Saul. That's the reason they're with David. It's not that they're loyal to David or they love David. Certainly some of them do, but not all of them do. The only thing they have in common is that they're all on the outs with Saul. And so now they've thrown in their lot with David and David has put them in this position after having an opportunity to kill Saul twice and now a third opportunity to go with the Philistines and go fight against Saul. He, David, has put them in a position where now they've lost their wives and they've lost their sons and daughters. They've lost their houses because of David. And so these men are now angry with David. They're angry with him for putting them in this position. This has cost them their families. And so after they're done weeping, they use what little strength they have left to get all worked up in blaming David for their hardship. And they try to get enough of support together to try to stone David, you know, because that would get their families back. That's, that's what they need to do. We need to kill David and that's going to fix everything, right? Their grief was transforming into bitterness and rage and murderous intention. David was suffering just like everybody else, but he's the one being held responsible for the disaster. So David, we read, strengthen himself in Yahweh, his God. While he's surrounded by these dogs who want to take his life, David strengthens himself in Yahweh, his God. What does that mean? Strengthen himself in God. Does it mean talk yourself up? Does it mean look in, look yourself in the mirror and say, oh, you've, you've got this. Everything's going to work out fine. You, you go tell them what's, what's up. Uh, does it mean just putting on a smiling face? Not, not really. Earlier in this book, we read that Jonathan strengthened David in the Lord. Now, now what, what did Jonathan do? Well, we read what Jonathan did. What Jonathan did for David, he strengthened David in the Lord by repeating God's promises to David. Jonathan said, God has told you that you're going to be king. And God has told you through his prophet Samuel that Saul and his house are going to be brought down. You know this, David, you know God's promises. And David was strengthened in the Lord by Jonathan, reminding David of God's promises and helping David remember how uh, all of his life, after all he's experienced and all he's witnessed, that the Lord had never failed David, not even once. So, So the way that we're strengthened and the way that David was strengthened in the Lord is to recall God's promises, to recount his deliverances and to have confidence that he's going to continue to do the same, that the same God who's brought us this far is going to continue to deliver us, that that God's promises to you in your baptism and God's promises to you every Lord's Day when you eat at his table are true. They are real. You can hang your hat on them. I belong to the Lord Jesus. I'm a member of his body. And this is not something to worry about. This is not something to fret about. This is not something to take lightly. I am his. He is mine. We're together. And nothing, nothing is going to change that. That's how David strengthens himself. And then the next thing he does is he, uh, he calls upon the priest. He calls upon God's representative. In, in the same way, we're even more strengthened. We're even further strengthened when we go to be with God's people. 
when we stand in the Lord's presence and worship. And that's, that's what David does next. So let me pick up from verse 7. So David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of Yahweh saying, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover everything. So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him and came to the brook Besor where those who stayed who were left behind. But David pursued he and 400 men for 200 stayed behind who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Besor. Then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and they gave him bread and he ate and they let him drink water and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him for he'd eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. Then David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Carathites in the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, can you, can you take me down to this troop? So he said, swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hand of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. Let's, let's kind of take those things in order. David calls for the priest. He says, bring the ephod. Help me to understand and discern what the will of the Lord is considering this situation. Should I pursue these invaders? And if I do, will I overtake them? Contrast this with what we've recently seen David. I'm sorry. Contrast this with what we've seen Saul do when he had a question. Remember, Saul was threatened by the Philistines and and he'd given up on any revelation coming from the Lord. And he ignored the Lord's words on several occasions. He, he ignored God's prophet and priest, Samuel. Saul has, has ignored God's word. And so now when Saul has a question, where does he go? Well, he went to a witch. Remember that? Well, here David is threatened. And he goes to the Lord and the Lord gives direction. David is about to be successful in his efforts while Saul is going to die, as Samuel said would happen the Lord gives David encouragement because David asked the Lord for direction. And, and the Lord's answer to David is, you go pursue them. You see, we still don't know who did it at this point. Now, we, as standing outside the text, the narrator has already told us it was the Amalekites, but, but David doesn't know this yet. And the Lord also said he will surely recover everything that was lost. You're going to get everything back. So David is in a situation now where it seems like the bottom has fallen out, but I remember the Lord's promises. I remember all the ways that the Lord's delivered me. I strengthen myself in the Lord. I seek the Lord's presence by standing before his priest and asking for him to give me direction. And there David finds encouragement and hope. And suddenly everything looks so much brighter and better. Everything is going to be okay in this situation. And we're going to get everybody back. This means, oh, our families are safe. Our children are are safe. Everything is going to work out. No one has been harmed yet, but we better get busy and go get after them. So David takes his 600 men and he gets as far as the brook Besor. Now, 
this, this text has a lot of geographical markings in it. And uh, if we were familiar with the land, we would know where the Brook Besor is. But uh, just trust, they get to a certain point, And there at the brook, there are men who can't go any farther. There are men who are so worn out, they cannot even cross the brook. Now, David, he doesn't beat them. He doesn't guilt them into going any further. He doesn't, he doesn't insult them into submission and tell them to come on. They've just marched for three days. They've just marched for 60 miles over three days. They have gotten back home. They found their houses burned. They found their wives and children gone. They have cried themselves to exhaustion. And now they march to this brook outside of Ziklag. And they're out of gas. They, they can't go on. They cannot put one foot in front of another. And when David sees that his men are exhausted, he doesn't push them. He says, well, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to leave everything heavy, every, every big piece of equipment. We're going to leave all the heavy stuff back here, and you guys guard this. Can you do that for me? You guard the heavy equipment, and the rest of us who are going to go on, we're going to go on. Again, in every one of these things, contrast what Saul has done with God's people to the way that David is leading God's people. Saul, remember, remember when he imposed a fast on his fighting men? It was so ridiculous. His men were fighting and he said, nobody shall put anything into his mouth until the sun goes down. And Saul forced the army of God to fight despite exhaustion and hunger and even threatened to kill Jonathan when Jonathan hadn't even heard the command when Jonathan touched some honey to his lips and felt refreshed. That was Saul. David is acting like a faithful, compassionate king. David is kind as king because he knows the heart of the shepherd who is his Lord and he's imitating his shepherd in these opportunities to love the people God has given him. David is kind and we're going to see it over and over in the rest of this text. When David's men find this Egyptian, this slave out in the open country, uh, we'll see him exercise kindness again. God providentially put the slave right in the right place at the right time for David and his men to find him. Before they met the slave, they didn't know who they were pursuing. They didn't know where to find him. They didn't know where they were headed. But once more, the compassionate King David takes this Egyptian slave. He feeds him. What does he feed him? Well, he gives him bread and water. He gives him figs and raisins. So he shows mercy to this Egyptian. He gives him the things that God provided uh, Israel in the wilderness, which was bread and water. He also gives him things that God provided in the land of promise, the fruits of the good land, the figs and the raisins. And after the Egyptian is strengthened with food, and only after he's strengthened with food, the Egyptian can talk and tell them what happened. They find out that he was a slave of an Amalekite, but that he was left for dead because he was sick. Stellar character there of that Amalekite, right? He's, he's dying, he's sick. I'm just gonna leave him out here to, to, to pass away by himself. And so David comes and he strengthens the man and he says, can you lead us to this troop? And the slave responds, if you promise to spare my life. And, and David's got to be thinking, what do you mean if I promise to spare your life? You think I'm going to get there and kill you? That just shows the kind of treatment that this Egyptian is used to. It shows how he's used to being treated and how he's used to being dealt with. So David is exercising kindness here. And he's got another opportunity to do it before we're, we're finished. But, but what David shows us in his tenderness to his men who can't go on, 
in his compassion on this Egyptian slave, he's showing us that you can be strong and you can be courageous and you can be a mighty warrior and you can be kind. You can be tough and you can be tender. So somewhere we got the idea that to be strong is to be a jerk. That, that, that if you're, if you're going to be a, a, a real man of strength, that you've also got to be kind of, you know, a, 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 a thick-headed a, a person who nobody wants to be around, right? That, that, that those two things go together. But they don't have to go together. Be determined, be strong, and be compassionate. And David shows us how, and he's able to show us how because he knows the heart of the the shepherd who is our Lord. Let's pick it up and we'll see, we'll see more of this play out. Verse 16. And when, when he brought them down, there they were, these are the Amalekites, spread out all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they'd taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Then, then David attacked them from morning until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives, and nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Then David took all the flocks and herds they had driven before those other livestock and said, this is David's spoil. This is a uh, familiar scene to you if you've watched as many old westerns as, as I have. You know, the bad guys, they've all, they rob the stagecoach, or they rob the train, or they rob the bank, and then they're out in the wilderness somewhere, camped around a campfire, they're getting drunk, you know, they're, they're throwing money around, they're gambling, they're dancing, they're shooting pistols off in the air, somebody's playing a harmonica, you know, they're really enjoying the spoils of their victory. They're, they're, they're enjoying the the, the getting away with it. Now, the Amalekites here is pretty much what's, what's happening. They're, they're having a big party without care in the world. But, but of course, what happens in the Western then is what? The, the good guys sneak up and find uh, the, the guys hiding out in the wilderness, and they start shooting from the darkness, and they uh, get, rid of the, get rid of the bad guys. Well, that's about the same thing that happens here. David gets to the camp, uh, he, he's, he gets there in the morning and he attacks at first light when the Amalekites are hung over and not really in any condition to fight or defend themselves. And David fights them all the way until the evening. 400 young men get away. Maybe they were too young or too insignificant to be allowed any drink, but they, they get on camels and they ride away. But the rest of the Amalekites are all killed. David finds that the Lord has kept his promise. Not a single thing was lacking. They recovered everything that was stolen, everything from their sons and their daughters, all the way down to their salt shakers and the guitar picks and their needles. And everything is, everything is recovered from the smallest to the greatest. They also recover the other spoils that the Amalekites had taken from their other raids and the whole time that they had been raiding around Egypt. And now uh, David and his men come away with more things than they, what they lost. They come away with much more than was stolen from them. Now, all, all that is the action in, in this chapter, and the rest of this chapter is concerned with how David divides the spoil. I want to I read that, and then we'll reflect on the whole thing. Verse 21. So David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they had also made to stay at the brook Besor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. 
And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. But David said, my brethren, you shall not do so with what Yahweh has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. So it was from that day forward, he made it a statue and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now, when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of Yahweh. To those who are in Bethel, those who are in Ramoth of the south, those who are in Jatir, those who are in Eror, those who are in Sifmoth, those who are in Eshtimoah, those who are in Rachel, and those who are in the cities of the Jeremelites, those who are in the cities of the Kenites, those who are in Hormah, those who are in Korashan, those who are in Atek, those who are in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. Uh, there's, there's some background here. In Numbers 31, after Israel had warred with the Midianites and they came out of it with a great bounty of treasure, it was established that both the men who fought and the people who stayed back for whatever reason, both of them had a share of the treasure, not just the people who fought. The people who fought had a greater share of it. They all though had to uh, 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 divide up the spoils. They all uh, had to pay a tithe on it. David knows the law David is not a man who makes up his own laws, but he's, submission, he's in submission to the lawgiver, and he establishes right away that everyone is going to get a share of this treasure that they've recovered, even the 200 men who stayed back by the brook who couldn't take another step. But here's the wrinkle. David says, I'm going to treat the men who came as far as the brook. I'm going to treat them like uh, the men who were on the battlefield. I'm going to treat them just as I did the men who came all the way. He's making an application of the law here. He's, he's like a wise king in doing this. And he's setting up a statute that the Bible says was a statute and ordinance all the way through Israel's history, at least up until the Babylonian captivity. David does more than what he has to here. Oh, of course, this doesn't make everybody happy. The worthless men who have been running with him complain about this and say, that's not fair. They stayed back by the brook. They, they shouldn't get what we got. They shouldn't get anything. As a matter of fact, we should just give them their wives and their children, and they should get on down the road. I'm not sure we ever want to see them again. That's what, that's what they say. They're not compassionate shepherds the way that David is. They just want to know uh, to do, they just want to do what they think is right. They don't even know the Bible. They're not even following the basic limits of what God set forward in Numbers. But David puts them in their place. And then throughout the rest of the chapter, he, he uh, models this compassion and this kindness by not only giving uh, spoils to the men who stayed back with the supplies, but he starts giving spoils to every one of the cities of Judah, where he has friends, where he has support. This, this is going to strengthen his support. But he, but he also says this to these men who are complaining. He says, look, the Lord gave us more than what we lost. What does it mean for us to sit here and, and hoard this stuff? It, you understand, you were given this. You were given this so that you could, you could share it. If you, if you hoard this, you're just as bad as the Amalekites who plundered it, right? This is not yours. This stuff was plundered from Judah. We're going to send it back. 
uh, to all these cities. We're going to share it and we're going to return it. Uh, this is another great move on David's part because before long, he's going to try to rule these cities in Judah as king. And, and now he's establishing good relationships with them through all this gift giving. David is looking more and more like a king all the time. And he's looking less and less like the pagan king that Samuel warned them about. Remember, Samuel said, if you want a king like the nations, he's going to take and 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 take. David is giving and giving and giving and giving. The whole story here points us forward to David's greater son, Jesus. The, the emphasis here is not so much on David's military might, but on the gifts he gave. There's much more territory. There's much more ink used on the gifts David gave than on how he won the battle, I think that's significant. David won the battle, he delivered the bride and her seed, he plundered his enemies, and he gave gifts. Just like who? Well, Jesus. Jesus wins the victory at the cross. He defends his bride and her seed from the serpent. He plunders the strong man's house, and he gives gifts to men. That's the story of Jesus, and that's his work for us. What's more, the other thing we see here is that the hero of the bride and the seed, the savior of the bride and the seed, is kind to the bride and the seed. This story is dripping with the kindness and compassion of David. His compassion on the grieving men who just lost their families, who want to take their anger out on him, but they're, they're resisted by the Holy Spirit. His, his compassion upon the exhausted, heartsick men who just can't take another step. His tender kindness to the starving slave. His, his kindness to, to share the spoils, even with those who weren't even on the battlefield. This is not, however, a saccharine kindness to everyone. Kindness to rescue the bride and her children takes the form of brute force on the head of their oppressors and abusers. So, so David is very unkind to the Amalekites. He's very uncompassionate toward them. And that's how he loves his family. He loves his family. He loves the bride and her seed by crushing the head of the serpent, by being unkind to the serpent. And this is what allows him to be kind to his brothers in Judah. By allowing them to share in the spoils of his victory, he's able to do this because he's very unloving. He's very unkind in the same way to the serpent. This sort of kindness shows uh, us that what, it, what it means to be tough and what it means to be tender at the same time. And this is... This is something we need to learn, and it's a skill for us to pursue. It's absolutely necessary. This, this artistry of kindness that David shows us is absolutely necessary if we're to be the husbands and fathers men, if we're to be the husbands and fathers, the protectors of the bride and her seed that God calls us to be. This kind of kindness, in fact, is the most instructive, long-lasting investment that you can make in your marriage and, and in your children and in all your relationships. Kindness is considering the frame and the disposition and the circumstances of the other. Having a disposition that meets the needs of the other. And, and this requires you to get outside of your head a little bit and think like David, well, maybe I'm not tired. Maybe I could march another hundred miles 
maybe I'm able to go do this, but for whatever reason, this guy's not able to do this. And I'm going to understand that. I'm going to appreciate that. I'm going to say, well, what do I need to be for you right now? What do I need to do for you? You're experiencing something I'm not, so, so what do you need from me? And he, when he sees the Egyptian, well, I'm not hungry. I'm not fearful. But, but the slave is, you see, the slave is. What does he need from me right now? I'm not going to say, oh, you ought to be not hungry like I'm not hungry. You ought to be not tired like I'm not tired. No, kindness understands, well, wait a minute. There may be something going on with that person that I'm not experiencing right now. What do I have to be to them to shepherd them through this heartache or this hunger or this difficulty? You see, that's, that's kindness. How do, I, how do I communicate with them and provide for them in their lack where I am strong? Kindness is absolutely critical for peace and joy in the home. So pray with your kids, pray for your kids, correct them, teach them the Bible, set them up with a great education. Must, you must do all these things. But the one thing that they will remember more clearly than any of those is your kindness to their mother. That's the one thing that is most instructional. <laughs> That's the best catechism in the world for your children to be kind to their mother. And, 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 and you give them gifts, sure. You provide them the things they need. You spend time with them, do fun things together. But what elevates and what sweetens all of those things is your kindness toward them. Kindness wins the respect and honor that you desire so much. Helpfulness, uh, uh, I'm sorry, hatefulness and, and grouchiness and mean sarcasm destroys honor and it destroys respect. Kindness wins their hearts. Wives too must be kind to their husbands and children. Ladies, you must not allow your frustrations, your anxieties, your stresses, which are all real and which are all valid. You must not, you must not allow them to cause you to set aside and forget kindness. Ladies, kindness makes you heard. Kindness makes your husband and your children your champions. It makes them want to defend you and march to the end of the earth to please you. They will lay down their lives for you if you are kind. But if they feel like they can't do anything right, and all they ever feel is your wrath, and they rarely receive kindness, you are training them to marginalize you. You are training them to ignore you. Kindness is what David demonstrates, which wins the heart of the people. Kindness loves and pours out the gifts that God gave him onto the people that he is called to serve as king. This is how David is a good shepherd. He is kind and he is compassionate. There's so much more to say about kindness toward each other. I'm just gonna have uh, the apostle Paul uh, say the last word from Ephesians. Uh, Paul writes this. He says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the faithful shepherd, King David, and we thank you for all the ways he shows us 
your love and your kindness and your compassion upon us. Father, there's something in us that keeps us from, from pouring out the same kindness and compassion on those around us. Break whatever dam is in us that, that hoards this kindness and compassion that we have received. Break it so that it can flow out to our wives, to our husbands, to our children, to our brothers and sisters, to our streets and neighborhoods. Father, may we be like David, kind and compassionate, princes and princesses under King Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.